Now I'll hand it off to Steve. Good morning. I am Steve. Yes. Yes, I am. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I used to teach high schoolers public speaking, and the one thing that I always told them, number one, number one rule of public speaking, don't start by apologizing. So this is not an apology. I'm not going to break my own rule, but <clears throat> I was at a Christmas party last night. It was very loud. I spoke for like four hours to people at very loud volumes, and the voice I, I just, I, I'm getting the sense it's going to be cracky and squeaky. So, I just want to acknowledge that at the beginning, so I don't have to stop every time it happens. It's going to happen, I'm sure, but just so you know. Okay, <clears throat> um, today we are going to be reading from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, here we are in the season of Advent, and as you've already been reminded, Advent is a season of waiting, a season of longing, a season of anticipation. The word Advent itself comes from the Latin word meaning arrival or coming. And so here in this season, what we do, as Carissa reminded, reminded us, is that we celebrate the first Advent of our Lord that I just read about, but we also find ourselves and put ourselves into a posture of waiting and longing and anticipation for the second Advent of our Lord as well. We give ourselves over to the ache of waiting for his arrival at the end of the ages. So today, <clears throat> in this time that we have together, I want to focus on that name that Jesus is given in this passage, Emmanuel. The angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream and told him that the child in Mary's womb had been foretold by the prophet Isaiah, and that his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you've grown up in the church or if you've been around the church at any length of time at all, you've heard the God with us sermon in Advent. And if we're not careful, the, rep the repetition and the expectedness of that sermon, of this text, 
this rehearsal of God with us can just skip across our hearts and our minds like a stone across the water. But today, we're going to shake ourselves awake and re-enter that vast wonder and that vast magnificence of that phrase. Brothers and sisters, when Christ was born, his name was called God with us. In the birth of Christ, God came to be with us. But if I asked you, why did God have to come and be with us? Why did God's salvation of the world require that he take up residence in our flesh and blood? Like, couldn't God have done it some other way? Why did God have to be with us? Could you answer that? We take it as a given that God did show up in the person of Jesus Christ, but why did he do so? And if you've been here the last few months, you know we've been spending our Sundays talking about calling and vocation. <clears throat> and so what, to, what I want to do today is to consider the vocation and the calling of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all summed up in that word, Emmanuel, God with us. So, why did Jesus have to assume human flesh and be born of a woman? In order to answer that question, let us, lead, let us bring ourselves into the wonder of Christmas and consider this under two headings. Number one, the dilemma of a failed creation. The dilemma of a failed creation. And number two, the solution to the dilemma in the birth of Christ. So the dilemma and the solution to the dilemma. Number one, the dilemma of a failed creation. In the beginning, as you most likely know, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things by speaking words of power, creating everything that exists out of nothing. And once the heavens and the earth and the birds and the fish and the animals and the livestock were created, God began the crescendo of his creative work in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, excuse me, the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, so many things to say about this, but I'm only going to focus on one of them. God made humanity different than every other part of the created order. He put upon them the unspeakable blessing of bearing his image. Now, if you've ever read about the image of God, theologians have spilled so much ink over the years uh, writing about what this means, trying to figure out exactly what it means that human beings bear the image of God. And if we were to stack up all the books that have been written on it, it would fill up this room. But we're not going to get into all of the, that minutia. Regardless of the fine details of its meaning, what everyone agrees on is this. To be made in God's image means that human beings, in some way, visibly represented the invisible God on earth. That's what, it, that's, nobody disagrees on that. To be made in God's image, I mean, that's what the, it's what an image is, right? It's something that you behold, it's something that you see, it's something that your eyes fall upon and take in. 
human beings in some way represented, visibly represented the invisible God on the earth. Human beings were made to be God's vice regents upon the earth, taming the wild and extending the garden of God throughout the whole earth until God's presence filled up the entire planet. The image bearers of God would put on display to the rest of creation what God, the invisible God, was like. And they would, by their very existence, tell the truth just by their existence, just by being and bearing the image of God, by their very existence, they would tell the truth about who God is and invite the rest of the creation into songs of gladness and worship, praising the goodness of God. So God gave these image bearers the entirety of creation to attend and to enjoy. But as you know, there was one part, only one of creation that was prohibited to them. There were two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God permitted them to eat from the tree of life, which presumably would have extended their lives indefinitely. But he said, there's one tree that you must not eat from, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat of it in that day, you will die. And how long the original humans fulfilled their vocation with integrity, we're not really told. But at some point, the serpent enters the garden and spoke deceitfully to God's image bearers. And instead of casting them out as the one whose image they bore would have done, they were taken by his lies. They ate the fruit of that prohibited tree, and in doing so, they vandalized the image that they bore. Sin was born into the human race, and just as God had said, death came to them as a result of their disobedience. Why? Because they were cast out of the garden with no, no longer having access to the tree of life, which would have extended their lives indefinitely. Death came to them as a result of their disobedience. Now, consider what happened in that moment. In the beginning, God made humans to bear his image to put his own character and goodness on display for the entire created order. No other being in the created order was able to show forth the character of God, what God was like, in the way that a human being could. The trees could clap their hands. The oceans could roar songs of praise. But they could not tell the world exactly what the Lord was like. That representation was left to human beings. And when human beings fell into sin and death, they were no longer able to represent the invisible God in this world. There was a fundamental disconnect. They were made to show forth the image of God. Now, in sin and death, they were telling lies. Just by their very existence, they were telling lies about who God was. God is holy. He's not sinful. God is the author of life who lives from eternity, not the God of death and destruction. God is not taken by lies. He is the God of truth. And yet humanity had been taken by lies and no longer believed the truth. And so here, at this moment, is where we enter into the tension of God's dilemma, if I may speak about it in a human way. By eating of the tree, human beings started down the path 
to ultimate destruction. And in that way, what did that situation say about the God whom they represented? Furthermore, should death have mastery over the work of God? What could God do to make right this disaster? Well, I can think of at least two options, two ways that God could have addressed this dilemma. First, he could have simply abandoned the creation. We know that God creates not because he needs anything from that which he creates, but he creates out of the overflow of his joy and the goodness of his love. So if creation is spoiled, then let it run its course. Just begin elsewhere. Or, number two, maybe what he could have done was just forgiven their transgression and brought them back into the garden and uh, saved them from the consequence of death. After all, God is God. He can do whatever he pleases. Why not just forgive them and move forward? Why not? Well, our old friend St. Athanasius from the 4th century, I believe, somewhere old, um, responds to both of these potential actions in a little book that he wrote called On the Incarnation. And here's what he says. It would, of course, have been unthinkable that God should go back upon his word and that man, having transgressed, should not die. But it was equally monstrous that beings which had once shared the nature of the word should perish and turn back again into non-existence through corruption. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures should be made by him, excuse me, creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning? Surely it would have been better never to have been created at all than having been created to be neglected and perish. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his very eyes would argue not goodness but in God, but limitation. And that far more if he had never created men at all. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. So God could not falsify his own character. He could not falsify his own word by reneging on the promise that he made that in the day that they ate of it, they would die. Nor would it suit his goodness and power to simply abandon the objects of his creation to perish under the shackles of their own sin. We know from the rest of the scriptures that God is deeply and intimately concerned with his own glory. And both of those options would not serve to glorify him. In fact, both of those options would serve to diminish his glory. So God couldn't even create something to his own glory. So God abandoned. He, he didn't have what it took to continue the created order and to continue uh, working in it in such a way that it redounded to his glory. No, he's a failed creator. That's what this dilemma is all about. Therefore, the only solution 
to this dilemma comes to us rather cryptically, actually, in Genesis 3, verse 15. When God curses the serpent for his treachery, he also speaks to the answer to the dilemma that it created. I will put enmity, God says to the serpent, serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The solution, therefore, is this, that one day a mysterious person, we don't know who the identity is, it's very cloaked in mystery at this point, but some person shall be born, here only identified as the seed of the woman, and he will crush the head of the serpent and render all of his devilish works undone. And so Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden of God. They went forth on the earth bearing children who bore still more children, and they scattered to make civilizations and kingdoms, and they all labored under this curse of death. Every human being who had been born would also lay their heads into the grave at the end of their lives because they no longer had access to the tree of life. And they waited for the seed of the woman to arrive and undo the evil that they had inherited from their parents. Now, the nation of Israel was later to be formed. This was to be God's chosen nation. And, And God, speaking their vocation to them in Exodus chapter 19, said, you will be a nation of priests, which is to say that they would bear the presence of God, as a priest does, to the rest of the nation. And the only way that they could enter that covenant relationship with God that had been ruptured in the ejection from the garden is through death. Sin still imposed that barrier between his people and um, and, and their God. The sin and iniquity that it, they inherited kept them from walking with God, and so God instructed them through the mouth of Moses to create the sacrificial system. And so on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would symbolically transfer all the sins of the people onto the sacrificial animal, and then that animal would be slaughtered. In doing so, God looked upon the death of that animal as if it were the death of his people. And the blood that flowed down the altar flowed for the forgiveness of their sins. But even with such a gracious provision, the people still could not fulfill their vocation. The stain of sin simply ran too deep. And instead of bearing the image of God to the nations, they looked to the earth and started looking for God there and made idols and statues to worship. And eventually their corruption became so deep, so powerful, and so controlling that God brought judgment upon them and sent them into exile in Babylon and Assyria. And there, sitting by the banks of the river, they hung their instruments of worship on trees and they wept. And it was precisely into that darkness that God sent the prophet Isaiah to speak these words of hope. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You, people, you can't give the sign anymore. The image is ruined. You are no longer able to fully represent. So God himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The deliverer will come, Isaiah says. 
and his name shall be God with us. And then in chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so the identity of the mysterious seed of the woman grows clearer as Isaiah begins to preach. It's no longer just this shadowy seed of a woman. No, his name shall be called Emmanuel. He shall be a son. He shall be God with us. The government shall be upon his shoulder. When he arrives, every garment rolled in blood, which is to say death itself, shall be gathered up and burned in the fire. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And the people who walked in darkness and the people who sat on the banks of the river weeping because they had lost their land, weeping because the idolatry of their hearts had cost them everything that they loved, those people who walked in darkness could see this light and they longed for it to come and to shine upon them. And year after year they waited, generation after generation, they lived in the ache of hope, awaiting the arrival of this son, awaiting the the arrival of Emmanuel, the advent of this figure who would deliver them from death. For years they waited for this, hundreds of years. Generations were born and generations died, all waiting for this son to arrive. And then, one night in Bethlehem, a son was born in a stable. And the words of Isaiah came to pass. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, as moving as all of that is, it's beautiful. And as rightly as that brings us to worship, if you're paying attention, you'll probably realize I still haven't answered the question. Why did God do it this way? Why did God have to come in the person of Jesus Christ to solve the dilemma of a ruined creation? Why is it that he had to do it this way to resolve the dilemma of a destroyed image bearer in the reign of death? And for that, let's move on to our second point, the solution to the dilemma in the birth of Christ. And here it is as simply as I can say it. In the eternal counsels of God, from before the foundation of the world, it was decreed that the Son of God 
would assume a body so that he might be capable of death. Before Christ was born, he was the eternal Son of God, forever existing with the Father, omnipotent in power, unlimited, <coughs> excuse me, unlimited in wisdom. And in that state, there was one thing of which he was not capable, if I may speak in that way, he was not capable of death. It would have been more than we deserved to have the Son of God dwell in human flesh among us, just to come, to teach us, to perform miracles, to announce that the kingdom of God had arrived, and then, <clears throat> like Elijah, to have been swept back into heaven after his ministry was over. But that is not why Jesus came to be Emmanuel, God with us. God came in the person of Jesus Christ so that he might be capable of dying. Now, how does Jesus being capable of death solve the dilemma of God that we just spent all this time sussing out? Remember what God had said. In the day you eat of that tree, you shall die. And since that day, the human race has labored painfully under the curse of death. That sting, much as we try to put it off, that sting must eventually work its way into our flesh all of us. It was sin that introduced death to our people, and both of those conditions separated us from God. Even during the period of the wandering in the wilderness and the theocracy of the Exodus, God did not dwell among his people. Do you remember this? Because of their sin, God had to move not within the camp, but outside the camp. In order, to able, in order to enable God's people to be near to him, the sacrificial system was given, which we already mentioned. But this arrangement, while it did provide <clears throat> for the forgiveness of sins, did nothing to address the more fundamental problem of death. Though their sins were forgiven, still eventually they would feel the sting of death sink into their flesh at the end of their days. And not only that, but even forgiveness of sins affected by the sacrifice of a bull or a goat was not permanent since the death had to be readministered every passing year. The animal, as gracious as this sacrificial system was, the animal was not a sufficient representation of the glory of humanity that God invested us with. The penalty of human death had to be paid by a human death. As the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, <clears throat> for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifice, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the sacrificial system was a stopgap at best. If God wasn't going to violate his own word, that the penalty of death had to be paid 
excuse me, the penalty of um, human death had to be paid by a human death. What the sacrificial system did was to establish the premise, like, like even if the, the bulls and the goats weren't sufficient to pay for the human death, what the sacrificial system did was to establish that sin could be transferred to another and the death also could be transferred, which was sin's penalty. And so what we needed was not another bull or goat. It was not enough. What we needed was a new human. What we needed was someone made in the image of God, a new Adam. And so according to the Apostle Paul, this is exactly what we got in the person of Jesus Christ that night in Bethlehem. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the one man's obedience, important, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus Christ, Paul says, was born as the new image of God, as the new Adam, the representative human being who would be faithful everywhere that Adam had failed. And as the new representative of humanity, Jesus Christ was the perfect image of God. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus Christ was that perfect representation of the glory of God as an image bearer should be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was humanity in its full glory. You can see it in his face. And as Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman promised so long ago, In the midst of the tragedy of garden, Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the seed of the woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And as the perfect image bearer of God, Jesus Christ lived the life that Adam should have lived. He once told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to do the will of God, to do the will of the Father. It's, it's more fundamental to me than food is. And when that ancient serpent came to him in the Garden of Gethsemane and tempted, tempted him to eat the fruit of the tree, just believe me, just eat, and you will have everything that you lack, he said. Jesus Christ, the true image of God, refused and brought his heel down on the head of the serpent. And as such, he should have received everlasting life. The gate should have flung open for him into the garden, into the tree of life. But instead, he told everyone who would listen that he had come in order to die. He had assumed a body in order to be capable of death, not to enter into everlasting bliss because of his righteousness, but rather to die the death of the unrighteous. He was the victim of an unjust trial, condemned on trumped-up charges. He was sentenced to die by crucifixion. He had to become human to die a vicarious human death for all who walked in darkness. His sacrificial blood provided what the blood of bulls and goats never could, namely a sacrifice that matched the punishment of death that humankind had so long been haunted by. And as Paul says, by that death, by that one man's death, the many have been made righteous. And because of that transfer, because the eternal Son of God made himself capable of death, God no longer dwells outside of the camp as he did with the Israelites. No, instead, he has given us the Spirit of God by which he has made us his dwelling place. He dwells in our midst because the image bearer, the perfect one, died for our unrighteousness. Now, the second part of our answer is this. Having become capable of death, that was the first reason why God redeemed us in this manner. He assumed a body so that he might be capable of death. But having become capable of death, Jesus Christ destroyed death. Three days after he was laid in a tomb, the man, Jesus Christ, was resurrected. And in doing so, he conquered death. Death was no longer able to hold him. He was raised by the power of God, never to die again, putting that enemy, that last enemy, under his foot. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Since our father and mother, Adam and Eve, died, death has had dominion. We have been under its authority, its harsh and exacting and tyrannical authority. Every human being that has ever lived has been born in order to one day lay their heads into the grave. But now, death has no longer any dominion 
over the perfect Son of God, and he has taken that, and he has the destruction of death, and he has given it to us as well. Christ conquered death, and it will never harass him again. And what does that have to do with us? Paul says it in a couple verses earlier in Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is what Christ accomplished on our behalf by coming to us as the new Adam. Not only will he never die again, but for all who believe him, believe in him, they too will be united with him in his resurrection, never to die again. Christ destroyed death. And and that's actually a confusing thing to say because as we all know, we still die. So how can we say that Christ destroyed death? Well, listen to the way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled the vocation of Emmanuel, God with us, so that he, he could become capable of death. And having become capable of death, he destroyed it. He removed the sin, which is the sting of death. So yes, we still die, but because of the work of Emmanuel, death is not the last word on our lives. Death is no longer the bearing of a curse for those who believe in him, for those whose righteousness has been given to them by grace from the Lord himself. Instead, for the blessed of God, for those who find themselves in the community of Emmanuel, death is but getting dressed for God. One day, Christ will return with a shout of command, and the earth will give up its dead. And we shall dwell with him forever. Death is not the last word. And therefore, it's no wonder that on the night of his birth, the heavenly host broke through the firmament and sang with great joy, glory to God in the highest And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the Christ we worship in Advent. The one who loved us enough to step down from his glory and make himself capable of death so that you and I and we together might live. Amen? Well, now we come to the table as we do each and every week. When Jesus was at the end of his life, and he sat around a table with his disciples. He took the cup, and he took the bread. Do you remember what he said? He took up the bread, and he said, this is my body. He took the cup, and he said, this is my blood. As often as you eat 
this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me, of the fact that I did come in the flesh. I did arrive as Emmanuel, God with us. Remember that. But then do you know what he says? He says, and by the way, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it fresh with you in the kingdom of God. So not only, when we come to this table, not only are we remembering the, the, sec, excuse me, the first advent of our Lord when he came in the body, in the flesh to redeem us from death, but we are also remembering the future, so to speak, that he will come again and that we will enjoy this meal with him in the everlasting kingdom of God where death shall finally be destroyed. So, let us pray, and we will come to this table. Our Father in heaven, none of us are worthy of the gift that you have given us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. None of us are worth the death of the perfect image bearer of God, and yet you loved us, and yet you came for us, and you lifted us to the highest echelons of glory. And so for that, we give you thanks. We have nothing to offer in response except thanksgiving, except our worship. And so we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you are a member of this community of Emmanuel, this meal belongs to you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.